A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow and it's much appreciated. This series is produced by Authentic, a full service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. We work with forward thinking developers and property managers to create and then capitalize on demand for their properties. Our team at Authentic is built specifically for the commercial real estate industry, and we plug in every step of the way. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else we should have on the show, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. On this episode, I'm speaking with Michael Pink, the CEO and managing partner of Left Lane Ventures which develops boutique multifamily urban infill projects ranging in size from 12 to 75 units. Michael began his career as an attorney serving in the roles of associate, partner, and then of counsel at Best and Flanagan, where he practiced commercial and construction litigation for a decade. In 2000, Michael became co-owner, CFO, and COO for Mosquito, a designer and manufacturer of private label consumer goods for nationally known brands. Later, he started West Emery, which sells home decor, stationery, yard games, and pet products through national retailers. Michael earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a JD from the University of Minnesota Law School. He lives in Minneapolis and is an avid backpacker, water sports enthusiast, and explorer of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump on in. All right, Michael, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, let's start off by hearing a bit about your upbringing. You know, I understand your father was an architect by trade. Yeah, he was, uh, he was an architect. He owned his own firm from literally the moment he graduated from uh, college. Um, you know, he was an artist. He was a painter, sculpturer, photographer. I grew up in a house that was designed by him. So to say the least, I was surrounded by uh, an appreciation for aesthetics and beauty from literally the time I was born. Yeah. And I remember you telling me at one point that he designed the house you grew up in and it sort of forced you to be conscious of aesthetics and materials and stuff like that. How do you feel like that was infused into your upbringing? Yeah. You know, as I said, he, my father was an artist and um, he had a huge appreciation or has a huge appreciation for beautiful things and beautiful materials. And, um, you know, I think when you grow up in a home that uh, was you know, designed by an architect with great attention to detail and beautiful materials, and you're kind of surrounded by that, one, you get spoiled. And two, you develop a huge appreciation for how living in that environment makes you feel. So yeah, I, I grew up with that. My friends actually used to make fun of me as to, you know, like, why do you care so much about aesthetics? And I'd say, you know, it's not, it's not so much that I care so much about aesthetics. It's just, it's what I know. It's what I, it's kind of part of the fabric of my being. Somewhere along the way, your dad said, Hey, Michael, don't become an architect. Do not become an architect. Is that right? And, And what was the thinking behind that? Yeah. My dad told me if I became an architect, he'd kill me. I think that came when I, he, uh, one day walked by my uh, desk in my bedroom and I was drawing, uh, pictures of houses. But you know, I mean, architecture. I think is it's a tough it's a tough business. You know, you're 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 very subject to the ups and downs of the cycles of the economy. Architects work extremely hard. It's not the greatest paying job in the world. And um, I think you just thought there were 
easier ways to make a living. Yeah. And he wanted to see me pursue an easier way to make a living. And so you ended up not doing architecture. You ended up not diving in headfirst there. Although a lot of the influence that your dad had on you comes back to what you're doing today, which we'll get to obviously. But you actually ended up going into law. You practiced for 10 years. You realized it wasn't your path. I think there's probably a a fairly sizable story there if it was a decade of your life. But let's just pick it up with, at the point you decided to depart from the law world, you found yourself in the consumer packaged goods space, the development of those goods space. That's a mouthful. So maybe you could kind of give us some insight into what exactly that was and what you were doing. So I'll back up just one step from there. Before I left the law, I actively pursued informational interviewing and investment banking and um, consulting. And as I was going through that process, I, I realized that all of those fields were more of just the same of what I was coming out of. And it occurred to me at that time that what was missing from my professional life was being around people who are creative. I always like to say, like, I'm not necessarily the most creative person on earth, but I recognize creative talent when I see it and I can kind of curate creative talent. And so I was really interested in going into a field where I would be surrounded by creativity and I could create or produce. So as it happens, my wife had started a business that had started off as a promotional products company, but she was very, her niche was doing custom product development. And so they would design and source the manufacturing of custom products for their clients. And um, as I was looking to exit the law, she was looking around trying to find someone who could serve in more of a CEO role, which would leave her to focus on the, um, the marketing and the sales and the actual creative side of the business. And so I raised my hand and said, I could be that guy. And she was kind enough to allow me to be that guy. And that's kind of how that started. But ultimately, that business morphed into uh, a private label uh, retail business where we had national retail clients for whom we designed and sourced the manufacturing of products that were sold on the national retailer's shelves under their brand names. And then later, we started a second company where we did the same thing, but we sold those products on the shelf under our own brand names. And those those products were um, home decor, stationery, drinkware. We got into a lot of yard games. I call high-end yard games. They were beautiful <laughs> yard games. They're still sold today. Yeah, so I did that for about 15 years. And what's interesting about that to me is when we think about your upbringing and the influence your father had on you, a quote that I wrote down from one of our earlier conversations was, you ended up focusing on elevating the design of existing products. It's not like you're going out there and creating new product ideas out of thin air, you're simply taking something, and I say simply, it wasn't simple, but you're taking something that existed and you're applying high design, elevating the design to it so that it can be marketed to a different audience in a different way than perhaps it was before. Yeah, you know, the uh, exactly. And that was our focus really from day one. So much of what we did was look on shelf in the stores to see what was being produced and then frankly, doing it better. The yard games is a great example of that. We're all familiar with going into a sporting goods store and you want to buy a uh, croquet set and it's made of plastic and inexpensive materials and it's not well-designed and it's not beautiful. 
So I think the very first yard game we ever produced was a bocce ball set. You know, you think a bocce ball set's a bocce ball set. I used to joke that the bocce ball set that we produced was too beautiful to play with. But yet people did play with it. And it was just, you know, as a focus on, again, the uh, design and aesthetics and quality, just trying to infuse more quality into the product, but not making it such that it was unapproachable to the average consumer. It was just, if you wanted something more aesthetically pleasing and that feels better in your hand and was a higher quality, you would choose to purchase our product over our competitor's product. And we did that over and over and over again with pretty much everything. Right. And so around that same time, I would say in the years of kind of thinking of maybe you want to do something else or maybe you want to have a side hustle, you actually started development, I believe, around the year 2000. So almost two decades ago, a little bit more than two decades ago now, as a side hustle, partnering with a former client. And so there's a few things that play there. What was the initial spark there? And, and what, was the, what were the sort of ingredients of that side hustle? Yeah. So when I left uh, the practice of law, one of the very first things that uh, I did in my, my capacity as CEO of the product development company was go out and try to identify an office or a building for us to move into. You know, funny enough, I mean, with my, my love of aesthetics, um, I was very focused on having a building and a space that would be really attractive to, frankly, young creatives, because that's most of who we employ, employed were young creatives. So long story short, we identified a building in the uptown neighborhood of Minneapolis, and that would have been like right around late 90s, early 2000s. And um, the building was much more than I knew what to do with. It was a wreck. It was an absolute wreck. It had very cool bones. And um, you know, I could see how it could be turned into something super cool. But I frankly had no idea how to do it. So yeah, I tapped one of my, uh, my firm's former clients who was at that time doing a lot of multifamily. And, and the other thing he was doing was buying cool corner vintage buildings in this city and rehabbing them, repositioning them, and retenanting them. And so I tapped him and asked him if he would purchase the building with me. And he, he said yes. And we then proceeded to do exactly that to that building. And that was my first foray into development was this 16,000 square foot cool vintage building in the city of Minneapolis. And when did that transition happen between product development company sort of teasing out some real estate stuff with a partner and then making that entrepreneurial leap into you know, full-time development mode? Yeah. So we did that building together and then we did a few others over the years. You know, so I got my taste of, of real estate and development and realized that not only was it they were good investments. They played out really well from an investment standpoint, but they were also super gratifying from a literally day-to-day work standpoint. Like it kind of combined the creative energy that that I wanted to spend and the business side. You know, each building was its own enterprise, its own business. And it was its own product. I mean, it was kind of similar to what I was doing previously. It's the building is the product and you have to market it and figure out a business plan for it and decide who's going to occupy it, it, you know, and then go execute on that. So after doing that a number of times, I was pretty energized by the prospect of doing it full-time. However, I had a full-time job, <laughs> more than a full-time job. And then we started that second company, which created a, a full-time job times two. But at some point after starting our second entity about four or five years in, 
it occurred to me that the entrepreneurial pursuit of what I was currently doing was kind of behind us. And even though there were certainly improvements to be made in my existing businesses and little tweaks to turn and, and dials to move, I was bored. I mean, lack of a better way of putting it. And um, yeah. it just so happened that as I was having this realization, my longtime partner approached me about potentially forming my own entity to co-develop multifamily projects with him. He had moved to San Francisco years before and um, had opportunities here in Minneapolis that he couldn't pursue just because he didn't have the infrastructure and the presence here to do it. So I initially said, no, I've got my own things going on. I can't do that. And then after thinking about it for about six months, and this would have been early 2016, I thought, this is an unbelievable opportunity. Why, why would I say no to this? Right. So I spent the next six months essentially replacing myself and planning for my departure. And then midsummer of that, of that year, 2016, I cut over and started working with him full time. And I remember there's a big theme here that has to do with the dissatisfaction of what you were seeing built in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities at the time. Can you describe that? Like, what were you seeing? What what was disappointing to you? And and what what became that that fire under your under your butt to get something different out there? Yeah. So, I didn't literally grow up in Minneapolis, but I grew up about six blocks from the border of Minneapolis. And both my grandparents lived around the lakes area, Minneapolis. So it's really uptown. So I literally grew up in uptown. And then, of course, as I said, our office starting in 2000 was in uptown. So now this is 2016. It's 16 years later. And uptown had been completely transformed in large part by multifamily developers. You know, and not frankly for the better. I mean, a lot of the things that had made uptown a really eclectic, interesting, vibrant community had it kind of disappeared over the years. And in my mind, anyway, it was largely because of the way that development in Uptown had been um, pursued. And by that, I mean, you know, largely without regard, it seemed, for the, for the neighborhood that these buildings were being placed in and who lived there and, and the vibrancy of the street. And so, so many of these buildings were built without regard of the streetscape and how they interacted with the sidewalk and the community in which that they were being placed. And it really bummed me out. And the quality of the work, I just didn't think was by and large all that great. And, you know, the reason why I felt like I had been presented with such an opportunity was because it so happened that perhaps the one person in the city who was actually doing great work, you know, with really an urban planning bent and someone who was paying really close attention to the context in which he was building and how those buildings interfaced with the neighborhood and the street and the pedestrian environment was my former partner. And I was really enamored with that and really impressed by that. And I wanted to be a part of that. And you know, I used to joke at the time, which is not that long ago, but five years ago, it's like, well, the more I build, the less someone else can build. And the idea being, I hope I can do it better. I mean, I think I'm doing it better. Maybe you know, others could disagree, but that was a big impetus as far as like, we can do better and we should do better in the city of Minneapolis. So there's a story. I want you to tell this to the listeners because I think it it's resonated with me for maybe told me about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, you told me this story, but there came a point when you needed to, to cash a check and have a business name associated with the work that you were doing. And that's where the name Left Lane comes from. But tell us the story about how that happened and how that came about. Because I think it's pretty, uh, it's a cute story, but I also think it's a classic 
story that you'll have to tell for the years to come. Yeah, it's a kind of a classic story of entrepreneurism, right? Like things happen almost by accident. But so the story is, is that uh, I had been um, working with my former partner for about a year. And, you know, in development, things take about a year from the point at which you develop, identify a site till you actually start construction of a project. And you don't get paid as a developer until you actually start building something. So I had gone a year without making any money. And now we're building something. And um, you know, as I told you earlier in our conversation, the idea was that I was going to have an entity and my partner would have an entity and we would co-develop together. Well, so I had had no reason to actually form that entity because we weren't making any money for a year. But now we're building something and um, money is coming in. He wants to cut me a check for my portion of the fees and I have no place for him to send that check. So it's uh, Labor Day weekend, and I'm heading to my cabin, and I say to my three kids who are in the back of my car, hey, guys, by the time I come home, or we come home on Monday, I need a name for my company so that I can get paid. So you know, all through the weekend, the kids are throwing out names. I'm throwing out names. Every name that gets thrown out, we nuke for one reason or another. And now it's Monday, and we're heading home, and we're driving down 35W from northern Minnesota to Minneapolis. And we're about an hour and a half outside the city. And I said to the kids, like, hey, guys, we have an hour and a half to come up with a name. I need to get paid tomorrow. And uh, my youngest, who I think was 12 at the time, chimes in from the back seat. Why don't you name it Left Lane? And I looked in the rearview mirror, like, why would I name it Left Lane? Like, it struck me as being completely out of the blue. And she said something to the effect of, well, all the way up to the cabin and now all the way back to the cabin you, every other word out of your mouth has been left lane. Like, what are you doing in the bleep and left lane? Get out of the bleep and left lane. Don't you know how to use the bleep and left lane? Because I'm a fairly aggressive driver. And apparently I was not happy with the way my fellow Minnesotans were uh, using the left lane. So I was like, all right, that's, yeah, it sounded cool. Left lane. That, it was cool. And um, however, it was cool in a way that um, it was literally an inside joke that I never thought would uh, be public facing, right? It was, I was co-developing with my partner under his development company's name. This was literally a family joke. Well, lo and behold, a while later, me and my former partner split apart and suddenly left lane uh, became a public facing name. So yep. I've had to reinvent the story to explain why it's actually relevant to what I do. But the real story is the one I just told. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our company, Authentic, the full-service brand and digital marketing studio specializing in real estate development and leasing. If you weren't aware, I wanted to let you know about how our team adds value to all of your projects. Because Authentic has been architected with the entire real estate development lifecycle in mind, we sit in parallel with your strategy, marketing, rendering, digital, and leasing needs, beginning at day zero. To learn more about how we can help elevate your next project or to keep existing projects stabilized, visit our website for more information at AuthenticFF.com. Well, let's kind of keep the train moving forward. So you started, you parted ways with your first partner, started developing your own projects and all across the Minneapolis area, as you said earlier, you know, sort of this dissatisfaction for the development scene remained in the area. I think you said it to me recently, you know, a lot of these five over one projects were just uninspired. They were kind of soul sucking to the city. And again, losing that community aspect to 
what you were hoping to see built into these neighborhoods, into the fabric of these neighborhoods. And so from the very beginning, your personal approach, I believe, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, has been high design, attention to detail, contextually appropriate, and smaller scale, which let's jump into that now. So a few things happened around that time. All of these ideas were coming together. The 2040 plan happened in uh, Minneapolis. Talk to us about how that phase really sort of morphed into what you're doing today. Yeah. So, you know, one of my kind of central tenets of my practice and what I wanted to pursue was around this idea that so much of what is being built in the city still today and was being built in the city at that time, which was, you know, five, six years ago, was were these, you know, really large scale developments you know, 125, 150, 200, you know, unit plus buildings. And, and then oftentimes highly amenitized with these, you know, super elaborate rooftop decks and exercise rooms and yoga rooms and over the top common area spaces. And my feeling was that those buildings like that become essentially self-contained silos from which people really never have to leave. As a result, they don't really interact in the neighborhoods in which they're built. And they don't spill out on the street and they don't really ever become integrated into those neighborhoods. You know, and also as a result, my sense is that people can then be super transient because they're not connected to the place in which they live or the neighborhood in which they live. And so literally from day one, and I haven't strayed from this, what I wanted to do was pursue smaller scale buildings. And to me, smaller scale meant anything from say 12 units on the low end to 65, 70 units on the high end. And then those, those little 12 unit buildings have essentially no amenities of any kind, not even parking. And then as I move, you know, up into the 45, 50, 60 unit size buildings, have some amenities in the building, but have them be really modest, not something that would replace getting out into the neighborhood. So for example, I may have a fitness, little fitness room in my um, building, but it's not going to replace going to the CrossFit gym. Uh, in the neighborhood. And I try really hard to design my buildings in a way where they are not impeding the pedestrian environment. Hopefully they're enhancing the pedestrian environment and bringing more life to the street, activating the street and designing them in a way where the people that live in my building are part of the neighborhood. They're not siloed in the building. So that's kind of my thesis. Yeah. And and so you had a few early projects that were smaller architecturally inspired. I think you used the word to me artisan um, at one point. And the way that you described it is, you know, you built them, they cash flowed, they worked well, and you said, hey, let's do this again. And how can we do this again even more thoughtfully moving forward? And that's when around the time at least something happened in 2021 that you told me shifted your perspective a bit with what you had been working on in the years previous. And it started with a phone call from, of all things, a UT Austin student. What was that story? Yeah, so the second project that I did on my own was a little 12-unit project uh, done on Garfield Avenue in Minneapolis. And for that project, I retained an architectural firm that would certainly never be considered a usual suspect among multifamily architects here in Minneapolis. But it was someone whose work I really respected, very forward-thinking, definitely has a perspective that is unique to themselves. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've been trying to get away with is kind of this ubiquity of this five over one. 
And there's a lot of reasons for that ubiquity. It's probably a subject for a whole nother podcast. I mean, it will give us developers a pass. I mean, there's a lot of outside forces that create that ubiquity. But in any event, for this little 12 unit building, I wanted to experiment and frankly was in my opinion, anyway, took a risk by going to uh, an architect who had not traditionally been thought of as a multifamily architect, though he would beg to differ, but that's also another story. But essentially, the charge to, to that firm was, we want to build a 12-unit building. We want a high attention to architectural detail and materiality. We want it to be differentiated from anything else out there. And we need to be able to build this um, at a price where we can actually get bank financing, and perhaps an investor if we need it. So, you know, we had to fit within marketplace parameters. And um, that's a significant challenge in charge. But we executed. We executed. We built this building. Beautiful, in my opinion. And frankly, I think the opinion of the neighbors who lived there, who I think were shocked to see that we actually produced and executed on the vision that we had presented to them. They were very skeptical. But to me, it kind of harkens back to a lot of what you see in Minneapolis, these, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s, vintage, you know, beautiful buildings in the city that we don't build anymore. And this is kind of the modern day version of that. And it worked. As you said, it worked. We built it for what we needed to build it for from a project budget standpoint. And it makes money and it cash flows. And so, you know, we thought, well, let's do this again. And we started designing um, a second project. And while we were in design of that second project, as you said, I got this call from a master's student at UT Austin who had been scouring the country looking for developers who had been able, as she said, kind of crack the code, overcome this challenge of small scale urban development. And I think actually she was focusing more on, you know, fourplex, sixplex, but 12plex or 12 units still in today's day and age is a really small multifamily building. And she said, you know, we, we talked for like an hour. And at some point she said, you know, you're like one of the very few developers in the country who have cracked the code on how to build these urban infill projects of that scale. And I was like, oh, really? Like, I was... That's good to hear. Yeah, I was completely surprised. It, did, it had never occurred to me that I was doing something that was, you know, overwhelmingly challenging. And I think that part of the reason for that is that I didn't know any better. Like, no one had told me that you couldn't do this or that it couldn't be done. And so, yeah, so she, uh, we, you know, she interviewed me and um, she actually recently just published her paper. But as a result of, well, actually, I shouldn't say as a result of, I got a call then in January so, uh, of this year from her. And she says, hey, uh, are you getting a lot of calls lately about your Garfield project? And I said, no. She said, well, if you haven't started getting calls yet, you're about to start getting a lot of calls because your project is being published and talked about all over the country. And, um, you know, again, I was like, really? Like, it shocked me. It frankly shocked me. Yeah. And so subsequently, um, sure enough, I've received a lot of phone calls asking me about how do we crack the code? Like, what's the secret? To the point where you were actually invited to a symposium that was being put on about small-scale urban infill. You got brought on. It was a roundtable situation. But something, you realized something during the round table, I believe that was also maybe surprising to you. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, so this is a, it was a round table discussion put on by the, I believe it's called the Turner Institute of Housing Innovation at Berkeley. And they had assembled, I want to say six to eight developers from around the country. 
to participate in that conversation. And the long and short of it is that over the course of this, I think it was about an hour and a half long conversation, you know, it really dawned on me like, wow, we really are doing something that is unique. And some of that I learned in the course of that conversation is a result of our relatively entrepreneurial banking community here in Minneapolis. Some of it is the result of the Minneapolis' 2040 plan that has created zoning that allows us to do projects like this. Uh, so kudos to the city of Minneapolis in that, uh, for that. But a lot of it, frankly, is about the team that we were able to assemble to pursue these projects. And, and again, like I literally, I had to reverse engineer my way into figuring out why what we were doing was challenging and difficult. But as I thought about it and reversed my way, engineered my way into the answer, yeah, it became clear to me that this is challenging. And there are reasons why we've been able to do it that are, we did, we cracked, we cracked the code. Mm-hmm. So if someone said to you, Michael, why can't these projects get done? How come these are so difficult to execute? What are the big things that come to mind? Well, you know, among them is... When you're building a 12-unit project in today's environment, your room for error is extremely small. You know, if you're building a 125-unit project and you know your lumber costs come in higher than you expected or what have you, it's well in the scheme of a 12, 14, 15, 20-million dollar construction project, it's it's a rounding error. When your you know your when your project when your construction budget's a million six. Little things make big differences, both in terms of your project budget and your ultimately your pro forma. So you need to have an architect and a contractor and a developer in place, all three of whom have to be singularly aligned in overcoming these challenges and inspired by the challenge and willing to work through all of those challenges to get to the number that, that is going to allow you to create a successful project. And that requires, in turn, a sophisticated architect. And it requires a sophisticated uh, builder and a developer who's willing to put in the time to execute on a project of that size, even though they could build a 100-unit building and invest the same amount of time and make you know literally five, six, seven times the fee. So why don't 12-unit properties happen more often? Is it just the fact that developers don't want to have to to deal with those unique challenges? It's easier to do the 100, 200, 300, 400 units? Or what do you think? It's certainly more lucrative to do the larger projects for sure. And you know, we all have limited time and, and limited bandwidth. So if you're going to choose to do one over the other, unless you have... It's a passion project. Uh, it's largely a passion project. So you really have to do it because you're passionate about that type of, of building. And the other thing is, what we've learned is that the, the contractor is a huge factor, huge factor. And your, your typical multifamily contractor is not scaled properly to build a project of that mm. size. They right. just can't do it cost effectively. And yet, building a 12-unit multifamily project is a fairly sophisticated construction endeavor. You have systems in place there that you don't have in, a, say, a single-family home. And so you have to find a contractor who's sophisticated enough to be able to execute on a, on a multifamily project, yet scaled appropriately to be able to do one cost effectively. And that is a significant challenge to overcome. One of the things that you just mentioned, that I, and I don't want to rush past it, is this idea of you know, 
on some level, these 12 unit properties are, you know, sort of a give back to the neighborhood. You're not going into it to make the most money possible in that same amount of time window as you referred to a couple minutes ago. I want to say that this is rare in the development community, right? Like your intention isn't to just maximize profits in the same amount of time. Your goal is to really maximize the outcome and execute at the highest of levels with these smaller buildings that fit the fabric of the neighborhood that you're choosing to put them in. And I would say, by and large, that's not really the MO of a lot of developers out there. So just to say it, you know, kudos to you for, for doing that. I think that's really great. You know, and I want to I want to kind of transition as we begin to wrap up here to the advice topic. Who knows? There there could be a young developer listening right now who's been thinking some of the similar thoughts as as you have, and and when it comes to your approach to development, but they have no idea where to start, or maybe they have a a few resources, but they're really looking for specific advice to get into this type of development. What would you tell them? What would those things be? What comes to mind? Well, I think, you know, for starters, you know, this type of smaller 12 unit product, or maybe it's a sixplex or an aplex type of product, makes for a very approachable place to start in every respect. I mean, it's more approachable because you have fewer units to design and lay out, and then all the numbers are smaller. And so you're more likely to be able to pull it off from a financial standpoint. And a bank's more likely to give you a loan because you're not starting with a 50 unit building, you're starting with a eight unit or 12 unit building. So that's the first thing I would say. And the other thing I would say is, you know, really to be a developer is largely an exercise in paying attention to the small details and just being careful, methodical, moving slowly and crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Um, you know, I like to tell people like, this is, this is not rocket science, but it's not easy either. And really, it's an exercise in, in, in investing time and, and being patient and being careful. And you can do it. We can all do it. And it's fun. Well, let's transition to a couple of rapid-fire questions because I love rapid-fire questions. I'm sure you do too because you wouldn't be on a podcast if you didn't like rapid-fire questions. The first one is, what is the first book that comes to mind that you would recommend to someone, any genre, and why? I'll give you the book that I'm reading right okay. now. Um, okay. Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Is what's on my nightstand and I'm reading at night. Okay. A little dark, but I'm a huge fan of historical fiction. And uh, Cormac McCarthy is a very, very vivid storyteller. You don't have to use a lot of uh, imagination to uh, picture it in your mind's eye. So, Okay, cool. All right, next one. I love this question because the answers are so varied. But in your mind, who else is out there doing exciting work that you think the listeners should be paying attention to? There's an entity out in Portland, Oregon called Guerrilla Development. And I love their work. It's not necessarily work that I would do, but I have a massive appreciation for the risks that they take and some of the iconic buildings that they put on the, on the landscape. I think they do really cool stuff. And I, I'm a huge fan of, of, of their risk-taking. Yeah. You know, a, a few years ago, we had... Um, she's no longer with Guerrilla, but we had Anna McKay on the show she was a great guest, learned a lot. So if any listener wants to rewind and go listen to that podcast, that was a great one too. They do incredible work over there. And I thought it was a little bit uh, coincidental that you mentioned that one, Michael, just because... Yeah. You know, the other thing I would say about them is that um, 
I love any developer that's kind of anti-corporate and uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, their name is Gorilla Development. It's like right, uh, right. it's right there in their name. Well, Michael, we we made it to the end, and there's only one more thing to do, which is to roll out the red carpet for you. And I want you to tell us what you're up to, where people can find you online, and give us the spiel. Uh, well, we have uh, two new 12-unit projects under construction as we speak, one on Bryant Avenue in Minneapolis and the other uh, up at the foot of MCAD, the Minneapolis College of Art and Design's campus in uh, South Minneapolis. And then this fall, we'll be starting a 56-unit building uh, in the heart of the, the Northeast uh, Minneapolis Arts District that we're super, super excited about. I joke, Chris, I am, I'm so far under the uh, radar that uh, I am almost imperceptible. But okay. I did recently uh, start a uh, Instagram account. You can find us at Left Lane Ventures. And in honor of this podcast, I I might actually uh, post something this weekend. Amazing. Yeah. If you go there now, you'll see nothing. But I swear to you that I'm going to post something this weekend and then uh, okay. take it on from there. And then someday when I put up a web- website, that will be found at leftlane.ventures.com. And joking aside, we're actually working on getting that that up there so that we can show off our work a little bit. Great. Yeah. And for all the listeners, we we do have a pretty comprehensive show notes list. So for anything that Michael brought up today, links, projects, obviously social avenues, we'll have that in the description as well. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It's It's been a pleasure. That's been fun, Chris. I really appreciate it. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic the full-service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. Visit us online at AuthenticFF.com. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash podcast or simply subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.